For April 26, 2010, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 95. I'd kick that. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. From the left coast, that's right, the leading edge of America, I am your host, Matthew Rather, here with a gargantuan, swollen, and gorged panel to storm the cemetery ridge of popular culture. (laughs) Because we are likely to spend most of our... Uh, podcast on the film Kick-Ass, which many of us saw and all of us, uh, you know, heard about, maybe intended to see, heard about. Uh, we are going to jump right in with the question, whose ass would you like kicked? In alphabetical order, we are joined, we were taken to task on our Facebook page this week for, for not having any, for it being all dudes on, on the site, which I'm sure Shana was delighted to hear. Um, but uh, no, just to prove them wrong, it is our token female podcaster, Natalie Baseman. <laughs> hey, hey. <laughs> Natalie, All you're, right. more, than token, other you're than more than a token to us, Natalie. You're definitely more than a token. <laughs> Thanks, yeah. guys. You're a Charlie card. That's what you are. You're cool. better than a... So I'm worth uh, roughly 5% less. Scenario. You probably mm. won't get that. All right, so person whose ass I would like kicked. Um, well, I'm a relatively kind person. Usually, don't get angry at people. Um, but recently, um, Gwyneth Paltrow has been getting on my nerves. <laughs> and, um, do you subscribe to her newsletter? I do not, but she pops up too often in the Huffington Post entertainment blog. And uh, that's almost exclusively where I get my entertainment uh, news. And um, I just don't like it. I don't like what she has to say. Natalie, I I hate to break it to you, but if you kicked her ass, that would probably only cause her to persist even more in the entertainment blogs, especially the Huffington Post. (laughs) So this may be counterproductive. Sorry. Well, is this also, is the one of those vegetarian celebrity, like vegan celebrities, where like there's not much ass to kick, so it wouldn't. Really yeah, I was going to say you're going to knock her hip joint out of its socket. Yeah. I'm pretty sure if you did that, you'd catch vegan. Well, the thing is, I was a vegan, and I'm currently still a vegetarian, and that's Uh-oh. that still gets on my nerves. There's no excuse to be a bitch about it. <laughs> uh, excellent. <laughs> Moving. <laughs> How serious can it really be about vegetarianism if you name a child Apple? <laughs> I don't know. That yeah, seems like I mean, if you, named a, too? if you named your child Pork Chop, that I think would be hypocritical. True. <laughs> Pete Fenzel next on the list. Pete, who's that? Oh, you want to kick? So I'm so angry because I wasn't first in the alphabet, but I like Natalie, so I'm not going to say that she's the one. I'm going to tell you whose ass is due for a kicking, a good round kicking right in his ass. And that's that Juan Valdez guy, because that ass has got such a smug look on its face, always looking at you from that coffee can, being like, oh, you can't do anything. You can't touch me. I'm up on a mountain in Colombia in South America. And it's like, that's right, ass. I'm going to get you right up between the uprights, and Juan Valdez is going to have to carry his own sacks of coffee up the rest of the mountain. That's right. I'm calling you out. Juan Valdez's donkey, 
I guess Juan Valdez <laughs> is who I'm calling out, but I'm hoping he brings his donkey so that I can uh, finish the job. But uh, yeah, no, that that guy, if it weren't for his awesome mustache, he'd be the one getting kicked. But as it were, uh, the donkey is the one first on my list. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, Pete Fenzel displaying his customary racism on the Overthinking a Podcast. <laughs> hey, it's not racism if they're donkeys or animals. <laughs> <laughs> Moving, I don't uh, mean that about Juan Valdez. Juan Valdez is not an animal. He's a human being. And he, sadly, he passed away, the actor, so I wouldn't want to want to whoop him personally. But his, as far as I know, his donkey is immortal and fights other donkeys and chops off their heads to take their powers. His so. donkey is more like the, the, uh, the form of the donkey. Yes, exactly. exactly. So, uh, all right, we have a special guest on for a little bonus overthinking and a, and a shameless plug tonight, but uh, he, can answer the, um, he can answer the question, too. Uh, Kevin. Yes, yes. Hey, Harrington, right? Yes, yeah. I nearly said Keith yes, Harrington, who is a different guy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I, don't, I think that's like my nemesis. If, if there is a Keith Harrington, I, I, that would be one of the first people I'd like to fight because uh, I'm constantly getting Keith or Ken's. Uh, that's when I know I'm getting a, one of those uh, automated. That's like when it's, uh, my, my college is calling for some money to be due. They're like, oh, yeah, so is there a Keith or a Ken here? I'm like, click. So, you know, that Keith guy, Harrington, I think he's been running up like Keith Harrington is a real like, guy. Oh, he is. Yeah, he Did was he the big? guy. He's the, he was the the gay painter who did those outlines of uh, outlines of people. <laughs> oh, I'm gonna fight him. Herring. He's, he's no, number Herring. two, not Harrington. Number two. Herring, Keith Herring. Sorry, oh. my bad. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I'm gonna reserve that. <laughs> I'd only fight if that guy's name was Keith Harrington, and if right. somehow, like, the laws of Highlander applied by defeating him, I somehow got more powerful, because right. or that Jet Li movie, The One, like, I'm consolidating the Harringtons and somehow uh, thinning the line and becoming more powerful. But if I if I was to pick one person, oh, Jesus, there's so many people that need a beating. Um, I, I know a lot of people are going to hate on me for this, but uh, I think I'd beat up Batman. I would beat Batman to death. And it's not, it's not for the reason that you guys would think, like, no, he's a great guy and he's doing all this stuff, you know, cleaning up Gotham City and, you know, he's fictitious and all. So it's like one that's it's pretty, you know, fearless for me to beat up a fictional character. But if I could theoretically beat up Batman, um, I'm pretty sure I could run for president of the world because nobody would with you. Like, if you beat up Batman, that's, that's like the height. It's like... There's nothing better than that. Yes, maybe Superman, but come on, that guy's got every f***ing power. How am I going to beat up his ass unless I just, like, eat the sun and then trick him into, you know, a room full of kryptonite and, I don't know. Well, actually, no, f*** it. Let's, let's beat up Superman. Because if we beat up Superman, <laughs> Batman's going to be living in fear that I beat up Superman and I've got that one up on him. And he's like, oh, f***, Harrington doesn't have any superpowers. He doesn't have any gadgets, and he still whips Superman's ass, which I've been trying to do for 40 years because I know... I know he's totally f***ing all the ladies I've been taking out. So, yeah. Her- I, I guess Doomsday 2012. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So, yeah, we're, we're, uh, we're, hit, we're getting hit on our uh, iTunes clean rating on this one, but I think it's a special <laughs> occasion, right? So. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> Mark yeah, Lee. Okay, my, my knee-jerk reaction was McGee. For freaking Terminator, oh. freaking Salvation. Still, we'll hold him against that. But then uh, you would think about it more, and I've said it before in the podcast, that really Christian Bale actually has more to blame for the crappiness that was Terminator Salvation because when he signed on to be John Connor, they did a bunch of rewrites. But no, I don't think I want to kick his ass either. Uh, probably couldn't take him. 
I settled on Glenn Beck because I probably actually could kick his ass, and he really, really deserves it. I think as bad as Terminator Salvation was and the damage that it has done to this nation, to my psyche, Glenn Beck does it even worse and actually has far more real-world percussions. So, repercussions. So, Glenn Beck, you're on my list. You're getting your ass kicked. Excellent. Mark thrown down for Glenn Beck. Josh McNeil. <laughs> uh, I actually just want to hold Glenn Beck down. <laughs> while, uh, while Mark goes to town. Uh, that was actually my, my, my first answer, too. Uh, but I'm going to go with America's 25th president, William McKinley. He's, de- he's dead! Well, it should be easy, then. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a fit man, Mark. I need to... You know, Batman is, is too supreme a challenge for me. But no, McKinley beat William Jennings Bryant in 26, kept us on the gold standard... Largely responsible for uh, for a lot of bad things that happened. So uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna stick with I'm sorry 1896. Um, I'm gonna stick with McKinley. Excellent. And uh, second, and then uh, John Parrish next in the alphabet. This is a big panel. This is a, a large panel. Parrish. What up? What up? What up? All right. I, I actually had this in mind before Mark Lee said Glenn Beck. So I'm not just uh, riding these coattails. But I would seriously like to kick Keith Olbermann's ass because oh, as as bad as as bad as Glenn Beck is, and I'll I'll give you all of that and take nothing away from it. Uh, Keith Olbermann doesn't do the opposite side of the aisle any favors by bringing that level of frothing irrational discourse to the opposing viewpoint. I mean, you. you You'd like to believe that, you know, if, if one side is clearly insane and, and monstrous, which I don't genuinely believe it is, but if they're clearly insane and goofy, then the other side can distance themselves from it and be upright and forthright. But Keith Olbermann, you know, with his with his sternly improbable sentences and his lectures and his how dare you, how dare you, sir, it, it's it's really frustrating. I, I just want to punch him in the teeth. Excellent. On the, on the other side of the coin, the, the Democrats weren't doing all that well with their sort of genial, oh, yes, what can we do for you attitude prior to Oberman. Well, they're not uh, doing well with they're not doing well with Oberman's attitude either. <laughs> this is an excellent point. Rachel Maddow and John Stewart are the faces of the future for them, I think. They're where it's at. Amen. Fair enough. And I, Matthew Rather, am last. I want to kick the ass of the father who was beside, who was behind me uh, with his two prepubescent daughters watching Kick-Ass, which I think <laughs> we can all uh, describe as a hard R, right? Because not, not only was that guy like chomping popcorn and like rustling candy wrappers the whole damn time the movie was going on but why are you bringing two children to see a, a, an r-rated movie like what 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 is wrong with you what is wrong uh with our society uh that is the panel and i i think that is a good question what is wrong with our society i pity the fool who brings his two daughters to uh to see an R-rated movie, his two 11-year-old daughters, to see in a movie about an 11-year-old girl kicking ass. Uh, but uh, I, I don't need to pity the fool any longer because we on Overthinking It are hosting Mr. the Mr. Tea Party, our answer to the right-wing tea parties, the Mr. Tea Party, May 21st, Mr. T's birthday. Uh, have, a, have a little search on Overthinking It. Search for Mr. Tea Party if you want to know more about that or have a look at our uh, Facebook page at facebook.com slash overthinking it. Join the Mr. Tea Party. Pity the fool. Don't, don't quit your jibba-jabba and uh, don't get on no plane, Hannibal. Uh, <laughs> all right. You know what to do if you want to uh, 
join the conversation. You can join the live stream every Sunday, 6.15 Pacific, 9.15 Eastern, 0115 UTC. You can email podcast at overthinkingit.com. Call the voicemail at 203-285-6401. And if you do any of that, remember to leave your latitude and longitude so that we can target you with our missiles. All right. Before we get to <laughs> kick-ass, which is the, uh, which is the main uh, thrust, uh, which is the main ass we have in our sights for kicking tonight, for over-kicking, uh, we want to talk to Kevin a little bit about something called Geek Week, Improv Boston's Geek Week, uh, in which overthinking it for the first time in history will be taking a part. Tell us a little about, uh, bit about Geek Week, Kevin, and what overthinking it is going to be doing there. Well, uh, thank you. Uh, Geek Week is a festival that I produce at Improv Boston. This is going to be our fourth year doing it, and it's a week, well, a working week, five days uh, long programming devoted to anything from comic books to uh, fantasy, sci-fi, you name it, uh, anything and everything under the sun as far as geek culture involving stand-up sitcom, uh, sitcom, what am I talking about, sketch, uh, stand-up sketch, improv, and and animation. And Overthinking is going to be coming on to do Overthinking It Live. Uh, I believe you guys are going to do uh, some of your panel stuff, like what we're doing tonight. Um, you're bringing on a musical act, I believe. I, I forget uh, the the musical act that you're going to bring. Uh, yes, with, without giving too much away, there will be uh, uh, all new material. There will be live music, and there will be a chance to uh, ask questions directly to the panel of overthinkers, whether it's uh, whether it's pop culture material that you want us to overthink live or just questions about how the site is is run, how we come up with ideas for articles, how we put the podcast together, any of that you can throw at us and we will answer or make something clever up. And I also believe that John Parrish is going to fight a bear. Um, uh, it, have a- it's a small bear. It's a koala, but it's spicy. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 it is pretty feral. And uh, it, 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 it has done quite well. So it, it, it gets you both the adorable, oh, it's a koala, and, man, I'm going to see a man fight a wild beast. So hopefully you guys want to tune in for that. It should be a, it should be a great show. But, um, yeah, we've got acts coming from as far away as Portland, Oregon, San Francisco, New York City, Quebec, uh, which is in Canada, I believe, still. Um, doing all, we've got a great group coming up from New York. Uh, my buddy Brian Weck is coming up with his group, Ninja Sex Party. I hope I can say that on the Internet. They are <laughs> kind of like a tenacious D uh, comedy and music duo, and you should, you should check them out. They're, they're really fun. That's so, a great title. Hey, uh, Parrish, yeah. what, are, what are the overthinking at time slots? Uh, we are going to be at, uh, Kevin, correct me on this, but I think it's right, uh, the 11 o'clock slot on Friday and the 8.30 slot on Saturday. And I know we're, we're performing with some other people as well, so there'll also be stand-up acts and some, uh, some live sketch shows going up, uh, going up with us. Right, right. Uh, you guys got a, a good, good pack group that you're working with. Saturday you're going to be playing with Mosaic, which uh, they do kind of political-themed humor and, uh, and skits. Uh, really, really cool group, really fun, really good people. And on Friday night... The Geek Comedy Tour from Washington, D.C. is coming up uh, and doing a block and pairing, you know, your sandwich between uh, some good stuff. And you guys are actually going to be closing it out on Friday night. So that's going to be a really good set. Uh, the guys from the Geek uh, Comedy Tour are very funny. And, uh, you know, check out their website, geekcomedytour.com. Uh, you can see 
you know, once and for all that Han did shoot first, uh, I believe is like the first thing on their website. So it's uh, pretty, pretty fun stuff. If you like Star Wars, you like comic books, you're going to love those guys. So, Excellent. Yeah. And where do we go for more information? You can go to two places. You can go to improvboston.com. Uh, on the front page, we'll have a little section for Geek Week, and we'll have the showtime, show descriptions. Uh, another thing that we're running uh, for all the extra geeky deliciousness, uh, we have a role-playing uh, game session going on on Sundays uh, where we have an assortment of four different types of role-playing games, things from like Dungeons & Dragons to uh, Chill, which is a horror-based role-playing game. So anybody that gets a ticket to Geek Week can sign up to play these role-playing game sessions with actors and comedians from Improv Boston who will be running it uh, from 12 to 5 on Sunday. And uh, you can also check out geekweekcomedy.com. Uh, we are doing some renovations to the website tonight, so that should be going live either later tonight or first thing tomorrow morning with a brand-new pretty look for once. Uh, so that, and you can check out either improvboston.com or geekweekcomedy.com. And we will be there. All right, thanks very much for, for coming in on the show, Kevin. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys, and uh, thanks for letting me shill my stuff, and uh, hope to see everybody there at Overthinking It Live, and uh, stick around for the other shows. All right, thanks very much. Uh, we'll see you there. Take care, Kevin. And, uh, if, if, if I do come back next, next time, I will try to clean up my, my language. I apologize for getting you a few extra stars on your podcast. Uh, <laughs> we're going we'll, we'll to get the one star we're going to get the one star fail ratings, you know. <laughs> uh, we're going to get we're going to get chili peppers on our Eudora email inbox. <laughs> <laughs> Can we just put like car horn effects over? Oh, well, I guess when it's live I can't really do anything Yeah, no. So. Well, I I don't mind the live so much, but uh yeah, no. I'm I'm going through with the with the bleep when when we're done with here because <laughs> like uh like Kickass like the film Kick-Ass, the Overthinking It podcast is appropriate for children. <laughs> Take care. Well, Kevin. whenever I'm on, it's definitely a hard R. So, uh, thanks, guys. <laughs> and I'll see you later. Take care. All right. Film Kick-Ass. Who wants to start? Uh, all right. I'll start. I'm going to start because I got something I need to say about this movie. Something about this movie. Really important. Which is that I, I did not see it. So I need you guys to tell me about it so that I can participate in the conversation. Somebody else start. <laughs> uh, well, um, I might as well start because I also didn't see the movie. Um, so I'll, I'll – uh, there are some you, things you that – You people make me wonder why we even do a podcast. <laughs> it was, we have the enthusiasm, Matt. It's because you guys have the knowledge and we have the enthusiasm. That's what I've always been here for. It's never because I've been able to know stuff or say stuff. It's always because I'm, I'm willing to put myself out on that line and keep the energy up, man. I'm like the cruise director around here sometimes. Although you guys who actually manage things and coordinate them are more like cruise directors. I'm just sort of like the crazy guy by the love boat bar who's telling everybody to keep, keep on moving or whatnot. So anyway, go ahead, Natalie. Introduce this movie that you didn't see. Okay. <laughs> From the Wikipedia page, I can tell you all <laughs> that it was produced in part by Brad Pitt. Mark Miller, one of the creators, is Glaswegian, which means he's a hottie. And Clark Duke is in it, and he was in Hot Tub Time Machine, which I did see. And that is it. Thank yeah, you very you're, much. You're running, just, you're, you're running just a couple weeks behind. John Parrish, I know you saw this. I know you saw this film. Why don't you set the cognitive agenda by, uh, by starting us off with some issues? What up, what up? Okay, so Kick-Ass, I, I think we've all seen the trailer, or if not, can easily access it by now. It's about this 
teenage kid who, in more or less the real world, decides to become a superhero. Uh, and it also follows several people who are inspired uh, by his example and, and take up the superhero mantle as well. Uh, I, I, I'm going to offer some review comments, but I'll, I'll stay out of spoiler territory if possible. Although this, this podcast, I, I don't know, can we, try, can we try and keep it spoiler free or are we going to stray there or should we care about that or, or what? What's the you thought? Know what? let's, let's, say, let's say that blanket spoiler alert for everything in Kick-Ass. Uh, is it okay? So yes, now, I'm not going to give away anything. I'm not going to give away anything that happened on purpose. If I say anything that actually happened in the movie, it's going to be a total coincidence. <laughs> <laughs> uh, All right. So me neither. Yeah, yes. no, we're gonna we're 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 just gonna uh, open that kimono right up. Spoiler alert for Kickass warning, guys. Okay, so my my take was, and I think this is also the consensus of several of the reviews that I've read, which the last reviews have been largely positive, but still sort of mixed is that the title character, uh, Aaron Johnson's superhero Kick-Ass, is the least interesting character in the movie. Uh, I think the consensus is that far and away, uh, Chloe Moretz's character, Hit-Girl, is the the most interesting, entertaining, compelling uh, character, one of the better actors in the movie as well. Uh, Just, I mean, really just all around the reason you want to go see the movie. Uh, Nicholas Cage, uh, surprisingly, a close second. Uh, he, I, I know he's been a, a superhero fan for years, so he finally gets to play the the superhero role that he's always wanted to, and he does remarkably well with it. I, I was watching him uh, in one fight scene in particular. I'm thinking, wow, this is this is what he's been waiting 30 years to play. So, uh, yeah. So, I mean, that, that's my initial take. I'll I'll chime in with with additional commentary as other folks open it up. But that's that's my my take on it. Except, well, okay, one more thing. Uh, one of the one of the points that the the uh, the narrator, uh, the title character, Kickass, actually makes is that he's he's not an exceptional person in any way. He's not really strong. He's not really smart. He's not. He, in other words, he's not in any way really qualified to be a superhero, and yet he decides to one day out of the blue. So I wonder if the if the fact that he's the least interesting character in the movie was perhaps deliberate. That if you know the director Matthew Vaughn or the the head writers you know decided to make him sort of a in order to better fit with that theme of the movie, but I don't know. Uh, other folks who saw it, Josh, Mark, well, Matthew, what is, what is your take? So let me let me jump in here, Matt, and, uh, John. Sorry, and uh, I'm mostly quoting some analysis that I read on uh, Pandagon.net uh, by our, our our friend of the site, Amanda Marcotte. Um, but she one of her her spin on this is basically that the movie's a bait and switch, right? It purports to be about the narrator, the main character, who is kick ass, but it turns out to be about Chloe Moretz, um, the hit girl, that is. Um, and her sort of uh, the way that she's one interpretation that she offered of this was that they couldn't market the movie as actually being about Hit Girl as the protagonist, um, because in Hollywood, essentially, the protagonist needs to be a white male. So the white males are ostensibly put out there just so that, uh, you know, the movie can be marketed in a traditional way and appeal to other white males who want to who are the target demographic for this. But then the filmmaker then is allowed to bring in this uh this, this juggernaut of a character of 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 of, kid, of hit girl um and then just surprise the audience and assault the audience with that oh so it's like the horse whisperer where like the movie isn't really about the horse whisperer it's about the lady who likes the horse whisperer or like it's about like the like the bridges of madison county where the movie isn't really about the bridges of madison county 
lady who goes across the bridges of Madison County <laughs> to meet the dude and fall in love with him. I'm pretty sure or the like, body like, count and in, in, I'm sure pretty the body count in bridges of Madison County and Kickass are pretty comparable. So, so, so it's like it's like Steel Magnolias, where it's not about the actual flowers, <laughs> but it's about the ladies who are metaphorically similar to the flowers because of their courage in facing life's adversity and their ability to stay uh, friends and stay beautiful through trials and tribulations of their lives. Right. Well, the name. Or like how- <laughs> I mean, the name the name Kickass refers to a, a character, but it also refers to a um, uh, it also refers to a sensibility, right? Mm. An attitude, if you will. Yeah, I'm actually going to disagree with the the point Mark made. I think that the Kickass really is the protagonist because if you look at sort of the the hero's journey, right? He starts out as this sort of nerdy kid with nothing going on, and by the end of it, he's got the hot girl. He, you know, is a legitimate hero. He's done some good. Um, he's really changed a lot, whereas the hit girl doesn't really change. I mean, some bad stuff happens to her, um, but she ends the movie. Um, beating people up as she began the movie. Right. And, so, so Josh, I'm, I'm sort of with you. Let me just real quick here. I'm sort of with you, Josh, except the, for a couple of things. One, uh, by the end of the movie, Kick-Ass is decidedly the sidekick to Chloe Moretz. Right? Chloe Moretz, I'm sorry, Kick-Ass is the, is, the, is the sidekick to Hit-Girl. Hit-Girl leads the assault on the bad guys thing at the end. And Kick-Ass is just kind of helping out. Sure, he saves a day at the end, but that's what the, the sidekick could do. Again, I'm mostly quoting from Pandagon.net. Um, but the other sort of strike against this is, if you remember, up until the sort of the final climactic thing, Kick-Ass only has one instance where he actually beats up any bad guys. Yeah, and he's in the middle of – he's getting beat up pretty bad himself in the process. Yeah. Well, that's – I mean, that's, that's the typical hero's journey, though, right? You, I mean, they face adversity, they lose a lot, and then something – you know, something happens and they, they get motivated and yeah, yeah. at the end they succeed. Yes, but Kickass always loses. He always loses and he's always helped by someone else. It's like we're watching someone else's heroic journey through the eyes of a sidekick, through the eyes of a passerby who tags onto it halfway through. He's a lot like, as Blinky loves to say, Triple uh, X, who I think is captured no fewer than four times throughout the movie Triple X. Uh, and is not, in fact, very effective at doing much of anything except for talking really tough. And uh, manages to succeed largely through luck and the actions of other people. Um, yeah, but I mean, I think that's pretty common in, in Joseph Campbell-inspired and sort of post-Star Wars movies, right? Where you insist on doing a character's origin story, and by doing the origin story, you don't give them a lot of time in the movie to actually do, like, the fighting that you want them, that, that, that the fans would want them to see, right? I mean, you know, Luke Skywalker doesn't do a great deal of fancy things in Star Wars. Um, and, and he gets and his hand that, cut off, for God's sake. No, he doesn't get his hand cut off in Star Wars. He gets his hand cut off in... I mean, I'm sorry, I was talking about A New Hope. Um, He gets his hand cut off in Empire Strikes Back. Spoilers. Uh, Okay. Um, Darth Vader's his father. Spoilers. Um, (laughs) But, I mean, I don't know. I complain about this about the Dragon Ball movie. I complain about this about a lot of, like, Hero's Journey movies where you don't get to see the character doing the thing that you want them to do because the the Hollywood machine insists on showing you the, the path to what they became because they don't know what to do with characters who are fully realized in terms of being protagonists. They have to be everyman. Characters who become too strange, even if audiences identify with them, their addiction to this hero's journey storyline, which, I mean, of course it's important and it's useful, but, you know, their sort of slavish devotion to this particular interpretation of it, this sort of 
driven by committee script doctoring, forces them to take the characters that people want to see out of the things that people want to see them do and force them to sit on the sidelines of their own stories, like developing, right, making decisions, when really it's the other people who are doing interesting things. And, I mean, the good thing is that it lets character actors shine, right? It lets James Earl Jones as Darth Vader steal the scenes. It lets Han Solo steal the scenes. It lets people who have fewer restrictions on them shine in the movie. But... I don't know. Uh, I don't know if it's something that the protagonists, if we're really better off in terms of being told a story with these protagonists who don't get involved in what's happening to them and just think well, about it and ruminate. Well, think about the movies that have been made where the character doesn't go through that and the character starts fully formed and ends fully formed. I mean, there are not a lot of great ones. The one that's coming to my mind is the the most recent Superman movie where... You know, he starts the movie as Superman, ends the movie as Superman, and nobody really remembers what happened in between because it wasn't that interesting. Right, right, right. I disagree with you, Josh. I mean, all of the James Bond movies, all of the Indiana Jones movies, they're all examples of protagonists who, I mean, make make perhaps incremental changes over the movie, but otherwise start about as competent and worldly and learned as they end. It's much more of an old-timey action convention, right? Like, because if you think about Bond, think about Indiana Jones, the sort of pulp adventure-influenced story is a different sort of adventure story than really the the post-Star Wars story. Where we have, you know, and I think another thing, another difference there is that there's this connection with between uh, adventure and maturation that's very, very present in contemporary movie storytelling where the characters are not just going on adventures they're going through puberty they're becoming adults uh but take a guy like indiana jones he's a that's a story of a man right that's a story of a grown human being that's not somebody who is like you know being awkward with girls right and then like has to you know come into his own but they still find ways to tell stories with him and i wonder whether in this sort of urge to combine this sort of coming of age story uh, you know, with the hero's journey and this sort of generational story, whether the urge to do that is is robbing us of better ways of telling certain kinds of stories, um, whether it's just it's just slavish devotion. I agree. I agree that that the Bond films and the Indiana Jones films are are excellent and and a good counterexample to that. But in both of those cases, especially the Bond movies, the character is really not what it's about. I mean, the, the fact that it can be played by sort of by any actor, I think, makes that point is that it, those those movies are you don't go to the, see the movie because of the character of James Bond. You go because, you know, there's going to be a bad car chase in the middle of it. You know, I mean, you can play um, by anybody except Timothy Dalton, apparently. Right. Oh, yeah. There's uh. that. Um, <laughs> Lazenby was the best. The. Um, <laughs> but the, but even the Indiana Jones movies, I mean, like. He has a few sort of witty remarks, but but what you remember is the ball rolling down in the first scene, or the big German guy getting cut up by the propeller. Like you don't, it's not about him. You really think that people don't think that James Bond movies are about James Bond? Like they don't think that James Bond is like there in the present? Like is it about Goldfinger? Like I mean, I know that the plot doesn't revolve around James Bond's own personal struggles, but like. I mean, people really like James Bond as a character and really yeah. connect with yeah, him. Yeah, I mean, half, half the appeal is, is James Bond as an emulatable personality. Like, he's he's well-dressed, he's so cold, he, you know, drinks fine liquor, he romances exotic women. I mean, that's half the appeal. Mm. That is the appeal, but it's it's not an appeal of character he is not interesting he's someone that perhaps he lives a life that we would all sort of love to to step into for a while but it's not about him being sort of dramatically interesting 
I, the one time they tried it was oh, like, right. back in the Timothy Dalton era. They there was one where. I guess he was married, and then his wife got killed, and it really was about him. And I think it was probably the worst of all of them. That, that's I actually can't... the George Lazenby one. Is it really? Okay. Well, yeah, sorry. They kill his wife in all of them. It's like Hitchcock appearing in his own movies. It's like, <laughs> oh, it's his wife. Shoot her. Usually it happens in like a throwaway scene that you don't actually pay any attention to. It's happening like in the background. Uh, no, they don't actually, <laughs> they don't actually do that. Uh, I mean, I think I'll have to respectfully disagree, Josh, just in terms of – I mean, I think that it does point out something interesting, though, which is that um, – yeah, the dramatic action doesn't revolve around James Bond or inform James Bond's character in a way that we're used to contemporary dramatic action in movies informing and revolving around a character. But I think that the sort of arm's length that the action takes from the character is, is it's a different kind of storytelling. But I think it still is motivated by the character. The choices are motivated by who the character is. The things that happen are motivated by who the character is. Um, and of course, in the books, right, you know, in the Ian Fleming books, James Bond is a much more interesting character. He has that sort of world weariness um, that. Uh, that, you know the blunt instrument, as the Onion AV Club called it in their uh, their um, their feature that they ran on the the Golden Gun uh, this week, which was actually kind of interesting. Um, but yeah, I mean Ian Fleming wrote James Bond as a more kind of deep character, but he's deep, but he's not he's not like a well made play kind of character. He's not a character who kind of moves with the story and is indivisible. He's not like a David Copperfield, Oliver Twist kind of character where the whole world happens in his own mind, right? I mean. But can't we still have adventures with heroes and villains where the world doesn't, you know, revolve around what happens to this one guy, where he's just one force, one agent, and we sympathize with him and we like him, but, um, you know, maybe we don't want to, uh, we don't want everything that happens to have to do with him. Like, he's not the center of the universe. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I, what, do other people have feelings about that? Thoughts? Well, Pete, maybe he, he has become that way. Because how we see James Bond now is many different actors playing him. And I think that is part of the whole James Bond almost shtick now is that he's bigger than the man who is playing him. Because the man who is playing him wasn't the first, unless he was the first, but he's definitely not going to be the last. And I'm this would take in a whole different conversation, which... It probably shouldn't go, but I'm thinking the same thing in reference to Doctor Who as well, is that is the character going to take, uh, is it going to be made smaller? Is Are there going to be more limitations on a character or more because there are going to be multiple people playing them? So, I don't know. <laughs> the I mean, the, the thing about Bond is that the the... It's tempting. Look, this gets back to what we were talking about before, where we ascribe authorship or we ascribe agency to those people that that make our arguments work. You know, um, who's the author of Bond? Is it the sort of producers of the franchise, the people who hire the writers and kind of set the direction of the stories, or is it you know is it really the the actors? And what are the actors? What are the actors? And what are the uh, what are the producers? Um, what, what did the producers bring to it? I mean, when we're talking about, about this whole, this whole yeah. conversation about being a protagonist is a conversation about sort of agency and, and the power, you know, um, the power of any character to, to move a story forward and to change, right? Well, well James Bond is an, interesting fran- is an interesting franchise, especially speaking in terms of authorship, because I think it's evolved to this point where it's almost uh, akin to kabuki or no theater, in, like in Japanese, where it's... You know, it's this very stylized ritual 
where it's like, you know, there it, it's no longer a quick, or rather the, the effect of different actors playing James Bond. It's, it sort of breaks any notion of, of psychological realism that we as modern audiences come to expect, because we know the same, you know, the same person can't have been played by all five different actors. We recognize that it's someone else putting on the mask of James Bond and acting out the, the historical, you know, fable that we've, we've seen before. But anyway, can I bring it back to Kick-Ass real quick? Yeah, sure. No. Why would you, why would you want to do that on this podcast <laughs> I know, seriously. Oh, God. I'm, I'm a terrible human being. So uh, one thing that, that kind of bugged me, and I don't, know how much, I don't have much to overthink here except to, to bring it up and say it bugged me and maybe move on with it, is getting back to the cypherness, the cypherosity of the protagonist of the Kick-Ass character. Uh, he has a love interest in the, uh, in the story. Uh, I... I've, Katie, I think her name, and she's played by the uh, the actress Lindsay. I can't think of it, Lindsay Fonseca, who was also in uh, Hot Tub Time Machine, along with uh, Clark Duke, Natalie, Bate, uh, who you called out, Natalie. Uh, Thank you. But he, uh, but he has he has a love interest, and spoiler alert here for the movie. Uh, part of it is a that she's really sort oh, of man. Sorry. Hey, <laughs> she's she's really turned on by kick ass and you know, she knows the the high school kid through the fact they go to high school together, and so there's that whole Spider-Man thing of oh, she's really in love with my secret identity. Should I tell her? Should I not tell her? But another part of it is the fact that she, through some convoluted reason I won't get into now, thinks that the protagonist is gay. And so really confides in him like, oh, you know, we can really talk. We can be buds. And the implication being that because the protagonist is such a sad sack and is so desperate for attention that he's like, oh, okay, he goes along with it, even though it's going to be awkward once he finally reveals it. And then he does finally reveal it. And there's a moment of awkwardness. And then they make out and it's it's implied and later explicitly say that they have lots of sex. So in an alley, like sitting in a dumpster. Dirty oh, sex. nice. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. That, that With really, a homeless guy. Hey, how's it going? <laughs> that, that really All right. Means. Country Ray don't mean no harm. Okay, guys. If, again, if that actually happens in the movie, it's totally by coincidence. That's just what happens to me when I do that sort of thing. So, okay. Oh, wait, no. I don't mean that. I don't mean that. I mean when I'm uh, helping children learn how to read and not doing untoward things ever with anybody. Never mind. That really profoundly bothered me when that happened in the movie because – uh, I, I think for a couple of different reasons. A, the whole the whole subtext, which comes up in a few Mark Millar comics, and is really sort of understood with the with this sort of movie that you know, oh, being gay would be the worst possible thing in the world. It's it's an absolute you know source of humiliation. How terrible would it be for someone to be gay, et cetera, et cetera. That whole undertone. It's you know, it's depressing, but it's understandable. B, uh, the notion that. The protagonist lies to the girl throughout the movie and then, without much effort, gets her anyway, sort of as an afterthought, because that's the way these stories have to work. The guy has to get the girl, otherwise we don't know what to think of him. Um, it, it it was just disheartening. Yeah, I, John, I, I agree with you. That was that was I was one of the weaker parts of one of the weakest parts of the movie, certainly, um, which just kind of just reinforces what I was saying earlier. Like the entire story about Kickass is just window dressing. For everything that happens to Hit Girl, so yeah. should we talk about should we talk about Hit Girl now? Because that seems like what uh, 
Well, that's what the, all the interwebs are talking about. I mean, so, I yes. can talk about other movies that are sort of like this one, but if you want to talk about the characters <laughs> that are in this movie, you just go right ahead, Mark. You just take that sense of entitlement. You run with it. <laughs> yes, Mark, Mark talk, talk about Hit Girl. Give us your thoughts on, on the controversy. All right. Okay, so if you read the reviews for Kick-Ass, um, they basically fall into two camps. One is that, you know, this movie, sure, it's a splatter fest, you know, it's very shocking, but it's a postmodern commentary on superheroes and vigilantes and the whole idea of violence and it's making an interesting statement, blah, 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 blah. Kind of a Tarantino-esque, uh, you know, statement on cruelty of violence, it's sort of similar to Inglorious Bastards in a way. The other way that people are critics are reading this is that this is child exploitation. How ter- how terrible is it that Chloe Moretz is being used in this way and being shown cursing and violently killing people? And this is just really messed up, basically. Um, I think those are two pretty diametrically opposite points of view on Hit Girl and the violence of the movie. I don't think there's a, a whole lot of room to argue that both of them can be true at the same time. So in the interest of just making an interesting argument and making a, setting a dichotomy where there isn't one, I'm going to mostly fall into the camp of the former, which is that it is, uh, it's at least trying to be a very interesting uh, you know, postmodern commentary on superheroes and violence and that sort of thing. Well, that's, that's where I stand. Yeah, this, and this is the point that, that, um, that Amanda Marcotte makes in, in, her, uh, in her article, uh, which is that, like, it's, you know, she's, she reports having, having seen the movie that she heard people walking out saying, oh, that was awesome, and also kind of effed up, right? And that, like, uh, that, both of the, that both of these things can, can, be, uh, can be true. But I want to go back to my old chestnut about you know, really kind of looking into the the pleasure we take in seeing things like this depicted. It's a point that I usually make about um, about Law and Order Special Victims Unit, but I'm I'm going to say something inflammatory now, and I didn't come up with it. It's uh, it, it, Jews it, control the media. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Yes. No, no, no. <laughs> Just with the Only answer. the ones who do it by talent and skill and education and being really good at their jobs who happen to do it by coincidence. It has nothing to do with their ethnicity. <laughs> I didn't mean to say that. <laughs> Sorry, guys. <laughs> um, uh, this, this, like all my good ideas, comes from Anthony Lane. Uh, he he said, and I and I, I was inclined to agree watching it, though maybe I just had th- these lenses on as I was watching the movie. Um, as sex is to child pornography, so is violence to the movie Kickass. Hmm. That is Can you unpack say, that a little bit? That is to could, say, could you or Anthony Lane elaborate? <laughs> that is to say, it's it's you know it's kid violence porn, you know. And actually, I think that the um, I think that I I actually think that there were some like uncomfortable uh, moments right for me when um, uh, oh when Hit Girl you know gains entrance to the to the to the building to like fight the boss at the end, um, wearing a you know wearing a little schoolgirl skirt and pigtails in a look that at this point has been totally co opted. Uh, you know, by Britney Spears and pornography, you know, that's, I mean, there is no, no vestige of, um, of innocence in, in that look. And I think that by conflating, uh, by conflating the, the sex and the violence in that way, we're, we're left with something that is, you know, um, 
that is i don't know that that might require a little examination or a little a little unpacking before we uh you know before we sort of dive in wholeheartedly the you know the other one i noticed is is when she was like at at the her lowest point the way it was depicted right before kickass comes in and saves the day right um uh, she's like l- 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 sort of knocked over, spread eagled on the thing on the on the table, you know. And uh, the bad guy comes up to her with his gun and starts like you know pointing it down at her. And this this is not. I don't think you have to be, you know, a classical Freudian to to see that there's more going on here than just a uh, than just a plot point because it doesn't have to be depicted in that way. I'll say this that a in a in a theater that was cheering and and um hooting for a lot of the ultra violence which was pretty effing clever uh and and fairly awesome a great deal of it when they really started when the bad guys started laying into the girl and really working her over and beating her up like it got silent in the theater because it you know the um it was like it was uncomfortable that everyone was uh, it was uncomfortable that everyone kind of like withdrew sort of back into themselves where they've been kind of jumping out of their seats before. Uh, rather, I it, does that really support the point Lane was making? Because I thought I thought I thought Lane was making a point about violence, and and it sounds like you're making a point that they're making a point about the sexuality of the movie. I I didn't find anything either implicitly or overtly sexual about uh, Hit Girl's role in the movie. I, I thought, in fact, they did a, a very good job of, of stripping any sort of sexuality out of that. Well, the, like, the girl was 11. Like, it's not hard to... I mean, she didn't look a day over 11. It's not hard to, to sort of strip all the, the sexuality out of it. But I think, in some, I think in some of the trappings, in some of the trappings and some of the, the staging, uh, this is where it... it um, it it sort of came across for me. Hey, can well, I pause this? Can I, can I pause this discussion for one second? I just want to throw in a real world bit of context to this. Uh, it was announced today that the star of this movie, Aaron Johnson, who is 19 years old, is uh, currently expecting a child with his 42 year old director from a previous film. Right? Yeah, I remember that. Um, so just, just sort of in terms of, uh, sexualizing the young, um, <laughs> there's some context to this. Yeah, in terms of sexualizing the young, Aaron Johnson is the clear winner here. <laughs> <laughs> he got way more sexualized than that girl did. Yeah. Hey, can I, can I jump in with something that's sort of relevant to the week that was? Yeah. All right. So this week, and, and I think you did something. You compared this movie to to child pornography, I believe. And this week there was a really interesting development in a sort of idea of moral speech, which was the Supreme Court of the United States. I know we have international listeners, but the Supreme Court of the United States declaring that videotapes of animal cruelty are protected under our uh, First Amendment of the Constitution, which um, you know the American Constitution has a First Amendment that guarantees freedom of speech, assembly, and the press and whatnot. Um, and the uh, and there was an interesting proviso that was put into this this uh, opinion, this majority opinion, to protect the laws against child pornography by saying that the because child pornography it's kind of an interesting uh, interesting multi edged sword because it's a great political football. You can say that we're instituting a draconian privacy invasion measure in order to stop child pornographers, and no politician will stop it from happening, right? So you can say, okay, I've set up a computer that's going to monitor everybody's phone conversations, and if you say something that it doesn't like, it's going to send an electric shock into your face. And 
we're doing it to catch child pornographers. Oh, that's fine. That's great. Go for it. Uh, and then nobody starts talking when it starts getting the enemies of the Kurd administration or whatnot. But the one thing that they did say that I think is important to note in these kinds of discussions, because it, it, I don't know whether it really holds water or not as an argument related to these, uh, you know, what is okay and what isn't okay about exploitation entertainment, which was that the reason that these, this, these, the laws against child pornography shouldn't be struck down is because they're inextricably bound up with real-life abuse, right? Is that we know that the people who are making the child pornography are abusing these children horribly, and that by allowing the child pornography to be made and distributed, we are, you know, enabling and encouraging the, directly, like, the abuse of these kids. Um, which is, of course, why there's so much you know, disconnect between the laws that are on the books and, like, the behaviors of children sending pictures of themselves to each other and whatnot, and, like, adolescents and everything like that. Because the laws are there under this assumption that these entertainments are doing actual, you know, not actual, because that's kind of a question-begging word, but they're doing substantial direct harm to the people who are subjects of them. And I, I mean, I don't know about the backstory for Kick-Ass, but I can guess that the actress who's in it was not like beaten up or exploited or like no- nothing really terrible was done to her on set um right which would mean that it is intrinsically different from the kind of child pornography that all the laws are put down to stamp down on right um and, and that there's something that isn't wrong about kick-ass that is wrong about all these other entertainments well, and so the question i ask you guys is that is that a real distinction like is that a worthy distinction or is that something they just put in there to defend laws that they li- that they like so that you know because they're willingly ideologically inconsistent with like things that they have to protect because there's not a real distinction other than the icky feeling that we get about it i i I, I'd like to, I guess, sort of inspired by, by things Fenzel said, uh, el- elaborate and I think contest a little more rather his point. So if, you know, if, if the, you know, sex to child pornography as, you know, violence to kick-ass analogy holds, then the, then the, the violence in, uh, the violence in kick-ass is supposed to obviously titillate because that's, that's why sex happens in pornography of any sort, to, to titillate the audience. And, I think, I think to a certain extent, it. This is going to be tricky ground for me, so bear with me. I think to a certain extent, it does. I mean, the the scenes are shot in such a way and framed in such a way that you're meant to encourage and applaud hit girls, you know, balletic. Oh yeah, uh, no doubt. Ex- execution of of dozens of murderous thugs. You're totally uh, right. so. So thinking about this, I I I started thinking. Okay, divorced from the the reasons of the. The source material aside, why does Hit Girl have to be 11 years old? Why can't she be like 19? Or why can't she be 26? Or why, why can't, can't she, she be, be like 30? that girl? Or, yeah, exactly. Why can't she be 32? And I think the reason is because, and if, if Shana were on the pod, podcast, she could reference the article she wrote, is that once someone becomes that age, it's really hard to portray them as a strong, competent woman without also sexualizing them. Without, you know, it's hard, it's hard to portray a woman who can, you know, tote an assault rifle and kick a lot of ass without also putting her in a slinky black leather cat suit and doing lots of, you know, slow, voluptuous camera pans up from her, you know, well-formed ankles up the back of her ass, you know, to her, you know, to her side as she contorts around unrealistically, et cetera, et cetera. I want to see Whereas this I- movie. What is this movie? <laughs> oh, wait. Uh, it's, it's every it's movie. And <laughs> two, among hey, other things. Uh, John. Go ahead. Finish up, John. No. Yeah, let me finish up. So, I, an interesting thing is if if the if the girl in question is an eleven year old girl, and her costume is 
Like it, it's sort of like a stylized schoolgirl schoolgirl thing. Like Hit Girl's costume had a skirt to it, but it was also very clearly armored and very clearly functional. Then there's no question of it being sexualized. So once you strip the sex out of it, it's it's purely a question of raw physical competence. And I think that's something that's I'd go so far as to say applause worthy. You know, this notion that hey, girls can kick ass too, and they can kick ass more than the people who are supposed to kick ass by virtue of being named kick-ass, can. And once you strip any aspects of the male gaze and sexuality and all of that out of it, and it's just a female killing people en masse, then I think it's, it's worth seeing and is, I would almost go as far as to say, praiseworthy. Well, it certainly okay. does kick ass. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, so, so John, I'm, I... I, I I think that reading is valid, but here's my alternate take on this. And why is kick ass? Why is sir? Why is hit girl an 11 year old girl? And it's to shine the dark mirror on the audience, similar to what uh, a glorious bastards did. It's like, look at this. You are, uh, you are applauding and reveling in this horrific violence. Uh, and, and the product of a child being warped by her, uh, her, dad and who's twisted by all these you know thoughts about violence and and revenge and all these types of things this is horrible you know it's horrible and you also know that you are cheering this on uh this is kind of disgusting and that's uh, the hit girl is the 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 film's vehicle for shining that dark mirror on the violence saying look at what you've become this is what this is what you entered and this is what entertains you this is what titillates you how disgusting is this Hey, can I bring up a, a theory even though I haven't seen the movie and you guys can tell me whether it has any credence? Pete, you can bring up a theory especially because you haven't seen the movie. Uh, uh, excellent. It's called the Coriolis effect and it involves the inter-curting of the earth. No, um, it's the theory is that um, – so if this movie, Kick-Ass, is about this guy like trying to sort of sexually actualize himself, right? Like he has these insecurities and he, about like whether he's heterosexual or not, but not really. I mean it's not really like he's gay, but it's like these ideas about, about maturation and, and, and manhood – um, and, and sort of super, superheroism becomes this way of kind of acting out, um, you know, mature potency, right? Um, I, I sort of think about a literary archetype that is really kind of pervasive uh, in our own literature um, of, of the sort of wiser than her years, you know, um, strong against opposition, sort of like no nonsense, like shiny in the nonsense and everybody else, like not like eight to 10 year old girl, right? Who you find in things, everything from like Pippi Longstocking to Ramona Quimby, you know, like the old, all the sort of sisters and like the boxcar children stuff and like all through children's literature and young adult literature is populated and, and peppered with these pre- um, these like sort of very early like pre adolescent women who know everything that they need to know about the world and and just to sort of before anybody jumps in and, and uh, tells me about this, I would like to say that thinking back on my own memory and i 'll ask any of you guys to maybe think about this too before I like discovered girls like before the hormones kicked in, um, I really felt like I had a pretty good handle on what the world was about and like what was right and what was wrong, and like what I wanted to do with myself like I felt like a lot of stuff made sense, and that the sort of adult world was kind of messed up. And, um, and that it, all it really took was some ingenuity and some elbow grease and some determination to shine the light on all of the nonsense, and people would be able to fix things fairly quickly. Like, I felt like, as, say, like a third grader, like much more capable uh, in terms of changing the world than I have felt like since, right? And I think a lot of that is because we get bound up in our maturation stories and all this other stuff. Um, and, and I would say that even if this it, 
character is in the story to sort of titillate, I would point to potentially the father-daughter relationship as another angle. But maybe there really is this sort of, you know, maybe maybe adolescence is the enemy. Maybe, like, getting older and growing up and, like, you know, sexuality is the enemy. And, and, the, and this is a sort of alternative vision of power where, like, the sexuality of the world is trying to destroy this kind of intelligence and this, and this courage, right, by, by sort of, like – pulling it into its own sort of story of violence and maybe uh hit girl is a way like a ramona quimby character of kind of like standing apart and, and saying no like i'm going to forbid this from happening to me or from tapping to everybody else well that's i think that that's true but i think that there's always you know when you're watching a movie there's always the level of how something is depicted you, you know what i mean that like at a at a story level i think that 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 is true and we're at a novel uh, you know, or, um, you know, we're, we're hearing from the chat room as we go that the, that the book is a, a much more nuanced examination of a lot of these issues, uh, especially the issue of having childhood kind of warped or, you know, childishness subverted by, uh, by an adult's agenda, we, you know, which is a sort of, I mean, which is a sort of abuse, right? Um, that, that, um, that it's, it, that story can be shot in a, in a number of ways. And I, you know, and I really like, I, mm, there, there were a couple moments just in the, just in the, the, the staging and, and a little bit of the, the composition of the frames and, and things like this, um, that where, where I sort of wondered, where I sort of wondered if the lines weren't, if the sex violence lines weren't being blurred. And I think the sex violence lines are always blurred in movies because they're movies. And in movies, sex is awesome and violence is awesome. You, you know, like th- this is what movies, uh, this is the thing that movies do to us. I mean, they, you know, you get drawn into things that would be uh, reprehensible in point of fact, but that just are awesome on film. Yeah. You're referring only to violence there, right, Matt? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, well, no, I mean, I suppose, though, like, isn't... Uh, don't we get into like slasher horror movies, torture porn, torture porn, even the, you know, even the name of the genre, like, you know what I mean? Like terrible, sadistic uh, sex and violence, you know, gets, uh, gets perpetrated. And yes, no, not on, not on like uh, prepubescent 11 year olds, like, like hit girl, but on, you know, nubile young co-eds in the you know, camping in the woods or, or something like that in, in, uh, you know, very becomingly ripped, uh, you know, chemises or, or what have you. Yes. Mark, yeah. Mark, the septuagenarian torture porn in house coats is really yet to catch on. <laughs> <laughs> to, to, get, to get back to the point of, about whether, uh, about whether the movie is meant as a, a sort of inglorious bastards esque comment on the audience enjoying the exploitation. Uh, I think it, I think the movie tended that way, but uh, didn't ultimately go as far as it could have. There are moments, there are moments where we as the audience are meant to take stock of how twisted the hit girl slash big daddy relationship is like the very first scene. We see the two of them together when it's that very paternal father daughter conversation. And yet Nicholas Cage is preparing to shoot her in the chest about 30 yards. Uh, but, but by the, but by the end of the movie, the implication is clear that hit girl is going to do all right in the real world, even though she has no training for it. You know, she's been homeschooled her whole life. All she knows is violence and weaponry and savagery. Uh, but it's it's more or less explicitly stated that oh you know I have 
you know, I have all this money that I stole from drug dealers, and there's this other guy who's been sort of floating through the back of the movie that's going to take me on as a, a foster guardian, so I'm going to be all right. So I, I think if the movie wanted to take that inglorious bastards sort of step, it would have taken us that one step farther and shown us how ill-prepared Hit Girl is for the real world. But it, it seems clear that, you know, being raised by Nicolas Cage on a... a minded quest for vengeance <laughs> has only enhanced her ability to deal with the real world has not limited her to it in any way all right you do have a good to... point there oh you you want to you want to get one more in mark no other than just said yeah nick cage is freaking crazy <laughs> and I, well, the, the the taping on of the mustache was one of the more awesome things I have seen committed to celluloid in, uh, in a long time. But we're going to have to leave our conversation there for, for today. Do you have anything that you would like to add about, uh, about Kick-Ass, about Hit Girl, about agency and uh, the protagonist in stories, about um, uh, kitty violence porn? Uh, if so, you can email us at podcast at overthinkingit.com. You can call 203-285-6401. That's 203-285-6401. And, uh, and leave a message. In both of those cases, make sure to leave your latitude and longitude. You can also join the discussion uh, live in the chat room on Ustream Sundays at 6.15 uh, Pacific, 9.15 Eastern, 0115 hours UTC. Or join the discussion in the comments on the show notes to this on the website. Don't forget Mr. T Day, the Mr. T Party, uh, our answer to the Tea Party movement in the United States, the Mr. T Party movement, May 21st. Uh, go to the Facebook event, uh, join the Mr. T Party, or uh, overthinking it, or facebook.com slash, uh, slash overthinking it for that. If you are interested in, uh, if you are interested in, in the, the, the young kids these days having sex, why don't you check out the other podcast on uh, overthinking it? It's called These Effing Teenagers. Um, it's, uh, hosted this week by, uh, Jordan Stokes and me, where we consider what he has termed the crazy awesome sex montage in the Madonna episode of Glee. That's on the homepage at Overthinking It. Also on the homepage at Overthinking It, don't miss Cliche Mageddon 2. That's the, uh, that's the Mad Libs style movie cliche contest for 2010. It is in full effect right now and has an awesome animated gif uh you won't believe you won't believe the trailer that uh Belinky is cutting right now to um to run alongside it but uh it will be more like an original trailer it will actually trail behind the contest instead of preceding the contest as uh, as trailers these days inexplicably seem to it's inexplicable that is that they're still called trailers and if that is not enough for you uh, if that is not enough for you, we will be live at Geek Week in Boston. So if you're in Boston, you can come check us out. What are the times, John? Uh, 11 o'clock on Friday, April 30th, 8.30 p.m. on Saturday, May 1st. And if all that weren't enough, you're going to get five new articles this week on overthinkingit.com, the site where we subject the popular culture unceasingly to a level of scrutiny it probably does Kick ass.